morning again. How are you guys? All right, good. You can turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 13, starting in verse 24. And listen as I read. This is, this is God's word to us. Mark 13, starting in verse 24, we read these words. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Let me pray for us. Lord, as we come now to your word, we need your help. We need you to enliven our hearts and our minds to think rightly about what you have said here in this passage. We, we need to see again the glory and the might of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We need again to be reminded that all that you have written is real that your son Jesus Christ has, in fact, done all that is required to make us your own children and that because of his life and death and resurrection, we have a sure hope and we await with eager anticipation the coming of our blessed and only Savior. So, Lord, stir in our hearts a longing, a desire, and, and, and while we wait, help us to live faithfully. And so, Lord, I pray now that you would use the preaching of your word to that end, that we would live lives as faithful unto your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Stay awake. Uh, those are sobering words, a sobering command from the lips of Jesus. Stay awake. I, I wonder how many of you this morning are struggling to stay awake. Maybe some of you are saying like, oh, thank goodness, Ben finally is getting the hint. But I'm not asking if you are literally falling asleep in your chair. It'd be pretty hard to fall asleep in these chairs anyway. What I'm asking, and I think what Jesus means, 
is are you spiritually alert? Jesus isn't in saying stay awake, declaring naps to be sinful, but he's saying are you spiritually ready? Are you spiritually alert? Is there a spiritual vitality that marks your life? So Paul picks up on this language in 1 Corinthians 16, 13. He says to the Corinthians, be watchful, same word, be watchful, stand firm in the faith. Likewise, John, in recording the words of Jesus to the church in Sardis in the book of Revelation, writes this. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. So you see, even in just those two passages, when when Jesus picks up this language of stay awake, it's a call to be spiritually alive. It's, It's not to be asleep, not to be spiritually sluggish or even dead. So I wonder how many of you this morning find yourself spiritually sleepy this morning. How many of you find yourselves... Thank you, B. I appreciate that. It's helpful. He's got the gift of encouragement. As you evaluate your own life, is it generally one of spiritual lethargy or spiritual? Just laughing at me. Is it spiritual lethargy or spiritual vitality? Now, listen. My my guess is that many of you are are saying to yourselves, you know. I, th- I think by God's grace, my eyes are open and God has, has, has wakened me. But at the same time, I feel the temptation to spiritual sluggishness. You, f- you feel maybe even quite acutely a-, a dullness that rises up at times and-, and you know that you are not living as vigilantly as God has called you to. And, and when you're being honest with yourself, instead of a growing awareness of the depth of your sin and an intensifying hatred for it, you see a a laziness in your fight against sin. Instead of a deepening desire and commitment to obeying the Bible, you see a low-level apathy toward God's Word. Instead of a growing love for your brothers and sisters, you feel a weariness in serving others. Instead of a deepening dependence on the Lord, you find a general disregard for personal times of prayer. And instead of a life that is growing in its passion to see Christ magnified to the end of the earth, you feel a preoccupation with things you know have no real eternal value whatsoever. These are signs of spiritual sluggishness. And as, as we come to the second half of Mark 13 this morning, which, as, as Trev mentioned, it's a challenging passage of, of Scripture filled with difficult language to interpret, what I really want you to see, what I want to sort of cut through and make our way through it to see, is, is the remedy for sleepy and sluggish Christians. The remedy for sleepy and sluggish Christians. Two precious realities that are like, like a shot of espresso like an energy drink to the sleepy soul. In other words, if if you want to live your life spiritually alert, spiritually awake and ready, what you need is to, to fix your mind and fix your heart on the two main realities that we see presented here in this text. What are they? The the first reality is the present reign of Jesus. The present reign of Jesus, and then the second is the future return of Jesus. Two realities that if you will fix your mind and fix your heart on on these, these realities has the power to 
wake the, the sleepy Christian, the sluggish, sluggish Christian to alertness and readiness and vigilance. So let's, let's look at each one of these. The present reign of Jesus. Now, you'll remember from last time that the primary context of Mark 13 is Jesus' announcement in verse 2 of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And I'm going to tell you, uh, give you a heads up. I'm going to give you a bunch of stuff here. It's going to be a little bit of a mental slog here for a bit. Hang with me. Do, I mean, do some diligent mental work with me. If you will, there's a payoff at the end. So uh, you know Mark 13, he, Jesus announces in verse 2 the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Um, in, for, in fact, Jesus' words so far have been all in response to the disciples' question in verse 4, when will all of these things be? So Jesus in the first 23 verses has been preparing his disciples for the eventuality of that destruction, the destruction of Jerusalem. But now we come to verse 24 and, and we find all kinds of apocalyptic language that at first glance might seem to indicate that the context has changed from the events that are going to unfold in the first century to events that will unfold at the end of time. I'm guessing that that's probably how many of you just sort of naturally read it when I read those passages, or those verses. The sun being darkened, the moon no longer giving its light, the stars falling from heaven. But what I want to argue this morning is that the primary context of verse 24 to 31 continues to be the destruction of Jerusalem. And what Jesus means for us to see in this word, in this passage, is a glorious picture of his present and dynamic reign as the king of kings. Are you tracking with me? Those verses, 24 to 31. A lot of you are probably going to read some of those verses and go, this is end of the world stuff. And what I'm saying is actually not. Actually, the, these verses continue to have as their context the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And I'm going to show that to you. Notice the passage begins. In those days. What days? Well, if you move backward in the text, you'll find that same phrase. In those days, in two other places, verse 17, Jesus says, and alas for women who are pregnant and, and for those who are infants. In those days. It's a clear reference to the time when Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. Then you see again in verse 19, for in those days there will be such a tribulation as has not been from the beginning of, of the creation. Now, again, that can sound like end-of-the-world, apocalyptic-type stuff. But if you remember, two weeks ago, I argued that that's Jesus. Hyperbo he's using hyperbolic speech. He's using exaggerated speech to say, that when this happens, when Jerusalem is destroyed, it's going to be really, really, really bad. And so I understand Jesus to be referring still to the destruction of Jerusalem. So now we get to verse 24, and Jesus says, But in those days, what are those days? They are the same days he's been referring to in verse 17 and verse 19, the days of Jerusalem's destruction. And that Jesus is going to continue to talk about events that will take place in the first century is further confirmed when we move a little bit further into the text and we see verse 29 and 30 where Jesus says, so also when you see these things taking place, that, that phrase, these things, again, refers back to the question that the disciples ask in verse 4. When will these things be? And what will be the sign that all these things are about to take place? So Jesus says, verse 29, So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, and again, here it is right the nail on the head. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now if we're going to read that verse in its most straightforward, straightforward sense, I think we have to walk away saying that whatever is going to happen, Jesus is saying to these people, it's going to happen in the lifetime of the disciples. That's the most straightforward way that this passage comes through. And of course, verse 28, that image of the fig tree points us again back to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. You remember when Jesus curses the fig tree and ultimately he, he does that on his way into Jerusalem as, he, as he's going to engage with all the, the religious leaders in uh, the temple. Now, okay, yes, someone might say, okay, I'm tracking with you, but what about this language about the sun being darkened and the moon not giving its light and, and the stars falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens being shaken? That sounds like the end of the world, right? 
How can these things be said to have happened in the disciples' lifetime? And, and what about verse 26, which talks about the coming of the Son of Man in clouds and great power and glory? That has to be about Jesus' second coming, right? So again, I, I imagine someone might be saying, are, are you telling me that all these things happened, verse 24 to 27, all that stuff happened when Jerusalem was destroyed? And, and my answer is yes. Yes. Let me explain before you start uh, throwing things at me. Hear me out. Uh, in order for, for us to really understand what Jesus is saying in this passage, you have to remember that the disciples live in a particular time, in a particular place, with a particular religious history, and specifically with a particular literary tradition. A literary tradition. The language and the vernacular of the Old Testament was embedded in the way that they thought and communicated. Do you understand what I'm saying? The, the, the Old Testament, the language of the Old Testament, it informed how they thought and informed how they communicated. And because of that fact, when Jesus says, when they hear Jesus saying, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, the disciples would not have heard the end of the world. They would not have heard Jesus is talking about the end of the world. Why not? Because they have heard God use this kind of language over and over and over again in the Old Testament, not to refer to the end of the world, but to refer to his appearance in judgment over the nations. Do you understand what I'm saying? They have heard God use this language over and over and over again in the Old Testament but when he used that language, he wasn't referring to the end of the world. He was referring to his appearance to judge the nations. Let me give you an, an example of that. Uh, it, it comes from the passage Mark read earlier in Isaiah 13. There's lots of examples of this. If you would like more examples, just see me after the service and I can run through them with you. But this is probably a, a, a very, it's a good, very clear example of this. In Isaiah 13, 9 through 11, Isaiah is prophesying God's judgment against the Babylonian empire, which is in fact, now we're talking Western Civ. You guys remember your Western Civ history courses? You probably don't, but if you do, there is the Babylonian empire and, and they are actually going to be conquered by militarily by the Assyrians. Here in this passage, Isaiah is prophesying the collapse of the Babylonian empire and God's judgment against the Babylonian empire, which is going to result in its destruction. But listen to how Isaiah describes God's judgment against the Babylonian Empire. Remember, we're talking about history. We're talking about something that happened in history. The Babylonian Empire being destroyed by the Assyrians. But listen to the language that Isaiah uses. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay down the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger." Now listen, here's what I'm saying. When the disciples read that passage, the disciples had the Old Testament. When they read that passage, they understand that language to be referring to the judgment God poured out against Babylon in its destruction by the Assyrians. Are you tracking with me? Okay? So there's a literary and a, a literary culture and a vernacular there that Jesus was himself well aware of and was making use of to communicate the coming of God, the appearance of God in judgment, not against Babylon, but against Jerusalem. You understand? Now, by the way, it's a shocking thing. It would have been extremely shocking for the disciples to hear Jesus picking up the language of God's judgment against Babylon and applying it to Jerusalem. Now look, we do this same thing. We do the same thing. It's not, it's not quite the same as the Old Testament, but you'll, you'll get what I'm saying. When there are big political shifts in our world, we say things like, if there's like a, a, a big surprise election, we say something like, it was a political landslide. 
We use cataclysmic physical phenomenon language to communicate something big has happened. Or we say, or maybe you hear a newscaster say something like, um, such and such a candidate was turning the world upside down. Now they know and you know that they're not saying the world is literally turning upside down. What they're saying is they're having a big impact. You know that because you have a particular literary culture and a vernacular and a literary background. You know the meaning behind the words. Now what I'm saying to you is the disciples would have instinctively and reflexively knew the meaning behind Jesus' words. And they would not have jumped to Jesus talking about the end of the world. What they would have, talked, what they would have jumped to is Jesus, uh, Jesus is saying is God is going to appear in judgment. That's what they would have thought. So there's a meaning beneath the words themselves. And so when we get to verse 24 and 25, the meaning the disciples would have heard is, is this judgment, this unmistakable appearance of God in judgment against Jerusalem, and, and that what they were going to see was a turning point in redemptive history. Now, what is the turning point? Now, this is, now we're, I'm moving to my, the main point, right? We're talking about the present reign of Jesus. I'm getting there. Here's how I'm getting there. What is that turning point? In verse 26 to 27 he says, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. What is Jesus saying? Remember, what I'm saying is he's not talking about the end of the world, and he's not talking about his second coming. Though, before you label me a heretic, I, I will uh, go on record here and say, I heartily believe in the imminent second return of Jesus. You're going to see that a little bit in the passage. I'm just saying that's not what he's talking about here, okay? How am I seeing that? Look, the title, the Son of Man. We've come across that title a number of times through Mark's gospel. The Son of Man in verse 26, it is a clear allusion to Daniel 7, to a passage in Daniel 7. Flip back. It's helpful for you to say, listen, I, I told you this is going to be a little bit of an intellectual slug here. It's important to me, very important to me, and important to all the elders that you see that what I'm saying is from the Bible. That's why I'm having you flip. Okay? I want you to see that I'm not just making this up. Flip back, Daniel 7, starting in verse 13. Daniel 7, 13, we read this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven... There came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Okay, so in this prophecy, the son of man, listen to me, in this prophecy, the Son of Man is not coming to earth. Where is he coming to? When you look at Daniel 7, what I'm saying is Jesus is referring to Daniel 7. When, we, when he takes that title, Son of Man, boom, that's a pointer back to Daniel 7. And in Daniel 7, what is the Son of Man coming to? Is he coming to earth? He's not. He's coming to the Ancient of Days. He's coming to the Lord. He's coming to his Father. And his Father, when he comes to him, is going to give him a kingdom and a throne and a rule, an everlasting dominion and a kingdom that cannot be destroyed. And that's the point. Jesus isn't talking about his second coming here. He's talking about the way in which what is unfolding in the first century, what is unfolding in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple points to the reality that he is presently the reigning king of kings and lord of lords over all human history. This is the precious reality that I want you sleepy saints to see. That he is right now on the throne ruling. Right now. Brothers and sisters, right now he sits at the right hand of the throne of God ruling and reigning. And what I'm saying to you is everything that goes on in the first century is proof of it. Let me show you. I imagine for many of you this is a, a, a totally different way of reading this passage, uh, but the thing that convinced me here, the, 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 the scriptural thing that, that convinced me here that Jesus' words, uh, that what Jesus is referring to is his, uh, his, his kingly reign, uh, we actually find just one chapter later 
in Mark. So if you have your Bible and you're in Mark 13, you can just flip one single page, Mark 14, 62. We read here that Jesus is being interrogated by the religious leaders. That, that, thank you. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. Uh, so Jesus is being interrogated by the religious leader. Uh, that same, now you remember chapters uh, 11 and 12, he's been in conflict with these religious leaders back and forth, conflict episodes, right? Uh, in the temple and their interrogation. So now in chapter 14, he's on trial. It's the kangaroo court. They, they're, they're, they're trying Jesus. And the, the, the trial sort of comes to a climax in verse 61, where they say, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And look what Jesus says to him, says to them. And Jesus said to them, verse 62, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. You see what he's saying there? Does Jesus look like he's in control, reigning as king, when he's standing before this kangaroo court and they're charging him, ready to crucify him? You look like he's in control? Look like he's a king reigning and ruling? He doesn't. Right? The, the religious leaders think we're in control here. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. I am the Christ and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God and coming in the clouds with power. You see what he's saying to them? He's using that same language as Mark 13. They will see him coming with the clouds in power. He's saying you deny it and it doesn't look like I'm in control, but you are going to see me seated at the right hand of God on the throne. Now, here's the question. How will they see it? How will the religious leaders see it? And the answer is, they're going to see it in the events that unfold in the first century. They're going to see it. Well, hold on. I'll give you two, I'll give you two ways that they'll see it. But let me, let me just say this first. This is a really good reason why Jesus can't be talking about the second coming. Okay? If Jesus is talking about the second coming, he's either lying to them or he's mistaken because he says, you will see. You understand what I'm saying? He says to the religious leaders, you will see this. You will see the son of man seated and coming in the clouds. So he can't be talking about the second coming here. So in Mark 13, Jesus is telling his disciples that the religious leaders are gonna see Jesus' divine reign in two ways. And here they are. They're going to see his judgment poured out in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. It's evidence, it's proof positive that he is seated on the throne from which he judges the nations and exercises his rule against his enemies. Do you remember Psalm 110? I'm going to come back to it in a minute. Psalm 110, do you remember how that goes? The Lord said to my Lord, sit down at my right hand, rule in the midst of your enemies. Right? The, the evidence of his current reign is that he is ruling against his enemies. That's proof positive number one. But here's the second one. This is a more positive evidence. They are going to see an incredible ingathering of all God's elect from every nation into the people of God. Verse 27, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth, the ends of heaven. So what he's saying, listen, what he's saying to the, to the disciples is two things are going to happen. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. And then after that, the, uh, there's going to be this ingathering of all the nations. And both of those things are pointers to this fact that I am reigning right now as King of Kings and Lord of Lords at the right hand of God. And to give us a, 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 a even more assurance, verse 31, the heavens will pass away and the earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. Which is him uh, saying, by the way, uh, that it would be harder for heaven and earth to pass away than it would be for his words to pass away. 
So both of those things testify to the reality that Jesus has been presented before the Ancient of Days and given a throne, an everlasting dominion, and a kingdom that cannot be destroyed. And that's the point. That's what I want you to see. Jesus is king. Right now, Jesus is ruling and reigning from the right hand of the throne of, the God, of God with complete sovereignty, bringing all of his redemptive purposes to pass. And how can you know? Mark 13 tells you how you can know. Jerusalem was destroyed, and for 2,000 years, he has been gathering his people in by the proclamation of his gospel. This, this is what the author of Hebrews says explicitly, by the way. It's one of my favorite passages, Hebrews 12, verse 1. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, he, he is seated at the right hand. He is David's Lord in Psalm 110. He is the one to whom God says, rule in the midst of your enemies. Do you see, right, it's a right now present rule. We are not waiting for Jesus to come and reign. He reigns now, perfectly, absolutely, completely. What, listen, what you need to realize is that you are living in the, the, the climactic age of redemption wherein Jesus the Messiah has come into the world and accomplished a perfect righteousness for his people by living blamelessly before the law of God, purchasing their complete forgiveness and reconciliation by bearing the awful sin, the awful curse for, for our sin that he guaranteed our final and complete salvation when he rose from the dead in victory over sin and death, but not only that. Sometimes that's where we start, stop, but it's not only that. He ascended to heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God as the exalted king of the universe to rule over his people and to sovereignly guide the entire course of human history to its appointed end for the good of his people and for the glory of God. So, therefore, wake up. Stop living like you're dead. Stop, realize that right now Jesus is king over all and you have been given the unparalleled privilege of living in this world as his people. Look, do you know that the fact of Jesus, do, 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 can you comprehend all of what it means for Jesus to be reigning right now? Look, let me show you a couple things. Do you know what it means that Jesus is right now seated at the right hand of God? It means this. It means your sins, brothers and sisters, it means your sins are absolutely, completely, totally, entirely, fully, perfectly, unreservedly, thoroughly forgiven. Do you want to know how I know that? Because he sat down. Because he's seated at the right. You know what that you know what you know what it means when Jesus sits down at the right hand of God. You know what that signifies? It signifies that the work is done. There's nothing left for Jesus to do. He finished the work, and when he finished the work, he sat down. So be what you are, right? Forgiven children of God, living in a world of darkness that desperately needs to see the light of Christ. That's one thing. Here's another thing. It means sin has lost all penalty and all power. The penalty and power of sin have been destroyed. Listen, sin once was, you know this, sin once was the king of your life, wasn't it? Sin once was the one calling the shots in your life, but no more. Do you want to know why? Because Jesus is on the throne. Because sin has been removed right? Jesus has sat down. Now he rules and he reigns. He's the king. Jesus is king and that means you have power to say no to sin. It means you can have incredible confidence in your witness to unbelievers. L listen to the, see, when you understand this, it changes the way you read other passages. Look at Matthew 28. Jesus is basically just going to restate in a different way the reality of Daniel 7. And Jesus came, and this is a great commission, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You know what that is? That's Daniel 7. That's Psalm 110. That's Jesus right now, present rule. That's his everlasting dominion, his kingdom that can't be destroyed. 
All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I am king. I am ruling and reigning. Go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Do you hear the logic of it? He's saying, I've been given all authority. You the point is, you can't lose. He's, he's accomplishing his purposes perfectly. Jesus is reigning, so be bold. So take risks. Be ambitious for the sake of the gospel. Listen, before the Great Commission is your mission, it's Jesus' mission. And he's going to accomplish it infallibly through his people because he is reigning perfectly and absolutely and sovereignly from his throne. You don't, have to fear, you don't have to fear. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to think the mission's going to fail. No, he's reigning and ruling. So go, be bold, speak boldly. It means you have everything to gain and nothing to lose in this life. Jesus reigning right now means you have everything to gain and nothing to lose in this life. L- listen, the fact that he reigns, don't you know who you are? For all those who are in Christ, you are co-heirs with him co-heirs with the king of kings who is who is the king over everything look how pumped would you be if you found out you had some like long lost uncle that was super rich and left you this huge inheritance you'd be super pumped do you know what you stand to inherit in eternity do you know what the answer is everything all things are yours you will reign with christ You will inherit the earth. Listen, when you know that, do you know what that changes when you know that? Listen, you know, I'm preaching to me. I'm preaching to you, I'm preaching to me. Do you know what changes when you know that? Okay, you've got this tiny little bit of time here on this earth, but but then all of eternity where you will reign with Christ and and know his goodness and perfection and and know perfect joy in his presence. and, And Okay, so, you know, a little inconvenience here and there. Uh, in, in this life and sadness and suffering, but you can weather it. It's not going to crush you because you know. You know what's coming because he's, he sat down on his throne and you know what's coming. And we could keep going and going with this. Let me give you just one more. It means every single thing. Listen, every, I know you know this, but you need to hear it again. I need to hear it again. Every single thing that happens in your life, good or bad, enjoyable, enjoyable or miserable, easy or difficult, painful or beautiful, it happens according to the wise rule of Jesus in your life. He's king. He's ruling. He's reigning. You see, his rule is present and dynamic. He's actively complete. Listen, you don't have a king who is just far off, distant, clockwork or set it in motion and watching it go. No, he's presently seated on his throne, ruling and reigning, accomplishing his purposes in your life. He's working everything for the good of his people, the suffering, the heartache, the loss, the disappointment, the joy, the victory, the pain, the laughter, the love. It's all working together according to the wise rule of Jesus to conform you more and more into his image and to bring you safely to glory. Do you, see, do you see how setting Jesus' reign before you is like, it's, it's like an adrenaline shot to the sleepy soul? But this passage sets before us not only this present reign, but his future return. I'll be quicker on this point. Look again with me at verse 32 and 37. You see there are five exhortations to be ready and to be alert. Be alert. Be on guard. Keep awake. Stay awake. Stay awake. What I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. As I said earlier, this is not Jesus exhorting his disciples to insomnia. He's telling his disciples to be ever vigilant, to be ready, always ready, constantly prepared. Prepared for what? Verse 32, but concerning that day or that hour. Okay, so you see in verse 24, we're still talking about those days, but now a transition. Now Jesus has moved on from those days to that day. They are to be prepared for that day. And why must they be constantly prepared, ready at all times for the arrival of that day? Two reasons. One, they don't know when it's going to come. Okay, we learn that no one knows, not even, not even the angels in heaven or the son, but only the father. Verse 33 goes on. You do not know when the time will come. And listen, here's another evidence that what he's talking about in verse 32 and following is different than what he's talking about before it. 
Before it, Jesus is answering that question. When will these things be and what will be the signs that these things are to take place? And he's actually telling the disciples, here's when it's going to happen. You're going to see these things and you'll know when these things being the destruction of Jerusalem are going to happen. But now that day, he says, no, 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 you're not going to know when. You're not going to know when. That's the point. You're not going to know when. Second thing. So the, the first thing is, why, why do they need to be constantly prepared? Because no one knows when, when it's going to happen. And the second thing is, what's actually going to happen on that day? Verse 35 tells us what's going to happen. For you do not know when the master of the house will come. That's Jesus' way of saying that the Father has appointed a day when the master of the house, that is Jesus Christ, will come again. He will return. Right? I, I, I want to affirm explicitly and heartily and boldly the, the second return of Christ, the coming of Christ, the imminent return of Christ. In other words, the Father is promising that a day will come. Brothers and sisters, a day will come soon when Christ will return. And in light of that reality, we, we must stay awake. Now, two possible questions I want to address here. The first is, how can Jesus not know something? Does that trip you up when you get to a passage like this? How can Jesus not know something? Right? Jesus is saying, only the Father knows. Not even, the angels don't know. Not even the Son knows. Only the Father knows when. But doesn't this contradict the fact that Jesus is God? Now, um, no. The answer is no. I'll tell you that from the jump. Uh, you see he is referred uh, to there as the Son. Now, throughout Mark's gospel, wherever you see that designation of Jesus as the Son, you are meant to infer, when there's nothing after it, Son of God. When he, when he means for you to read Son of Man, he says it explicitly, because there is this such a close connection to Daniel 7. It's one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself, but when he wants to be known and referred to as the Son of Man, he says, Son of Man. But throughout Mark's gospel, when you see that word Son, and it doesn't have of after it, you're supposed to input of God. Now, here's why that's important. It feels a little bit counterintuitive and backward, but actually that designation son of man refers more to Christ's divinity and son of God refers more to his humanity. I can tell you, I, I don't have time to go into that now. I can tell to you about it afterwards in the service why that is. Uh, but just know right, for, for right now that when he refers himself uh, as the son, were to infer son of God, which actually corresponds more to Jesus Christ and his humanity. Now, I know it boggles the mind. I get that. The, the incarnation is a mystery, but the reality of the incarnation is that Jesus, when he voluntarily took on flesh, he took on human weakness, including ignorance. There were limitations that Jesus subjected himself to. You realize when he came into the world, he subjected himself to the limitations of gravity. Right? Jesus did not fly around. He didn't do that. He subjected himself to the limitation of, of gravity. He also subje subjected himself to the limitations of not knowing everything as a man. Okay? He had to learn things. When Jesus was a boy, his mother had to teach him how to do arithmetic. His mother had to teach. He didn't, he didn't come into the world knowing how to speak. His mother had to teach him how to speak. He subjected himself to a limited knowledge. Okay, so what does that mean? We find an acute example of that limited knowledge in Jesus' humanity. Namely, that he was completely submitted to his Father's will. And as a man, as a man, here, as a man, he did not know the day appointed for his return. Now, this in no way compromises the deity of Christ. Right? He is forever fully God and does not cease in any way to be what he was or will always be for all eternity. And yet here in his humanity, he can say, I don't know the hour or the day appointed by the Father. And brothers and sisters, here's what you ought to hear when Jesus says that. When Jesus says, I don't know, you ought to hear him saying, he is perfectly dependent on the Father's will even though he doesn't know and obeys anyway. Even though he doesn't know, he still is utterly dependent on his father and perfectly obeys. That's what you ought to hear Jesus saying. So that's the first thing. If you have more questions, talk to me afterwards. 
Second thing, I've heard uh, some silly things over the years from people who have tried to sort of justify seeking out when precisely Jesus' return will be. They say things like, you know, well, it doesn't, it doesn't say that we can't know the month or the season or the year. It just says day or hour. And I want to say to them, uh, you are absolutely missing Jesus' point. He's saying you do not know when the time will come. Jesus' command is very specific, right? His command is not to sit in your bedroom and pour over old calendars and do weird math. That's, that's not what he's saying. He, his command is be ready, stay awake, be on guard. In other words, live as faithful Christians so that when the master of the house returns, he will find you striving after what honors him, living a faithful life. Now listen, when you combine these two precious realities, when you combine the present reign of Jesus and the future return of Jesus, what you have is a deep reservoir, a deep reservoir to draw from so that we might continually pursue lives of spiritual faithfulness, readiness, alertness, vigilance. Jesus is reigning right now as the King of Kings. And so we have a deep and abiding confidence in our own salvation and the work he's given us to do. And Jesus is going to return. So we have an enduring and unshakable hope that enables us to live our lives, not clinging to this world, which is passing away, but in the light of eternity. And no one knows except the Father when that day will be. Maybe today. Maybe it will be, brothers and sisters, maybe it will be today. Maybe we will leave these doors and Jesus will return. Maybe tomorrow, maybe 10,000 years from now. We don't know. But while we wait in eager anticipation, we are called to be faithful. We're called to be faithful. L- listen, let me close with, with these words uh, from Peter. He, he, he writes the, the, uh, these words in 2 Peter 3. He says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Do you see the relationship there that Peter draws? He's coming, therefore, what kind of lives ought you to be living as you wait for him? What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus Christ, he reigns. Right now, he reigns, and he is coming again. You could be sure of that. You could take it to the bank. He's coming. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you for uh, this time to uh, remember these these two precious truths, uh, that your son Jesus right now is, is seated at your right hand and that he will come again. And we pray that these truths would indeed have their full effect in our hearts, that we would be roused from any sleepiness, from any sluggishness, that we would live live alert, ready, vigilant lives of faithfulness to you while we anticipate that glorious day when, when our Savior Jesus returns. So do that in the lives of these brothers and sisters for the sake of your name. Amen. As we move to the Lord's table... Um, we are reminded that far too often we are sleepy, right? Uh, That we are sluggish, not living vibrant, alert, ready Christian lives, but lethargic and sluggish. Uh, But at the Lord's table, we are also reminded that Christ died for sleepy people like us, right? Um, he, he, He died for spiritual sleepers, not so that they might be contented in their sleepiness, but so that they might wake up and live their lives unto him. You know, I I mentioned that what we find here in in this passage is Jesus submitting to the will of his father. In those words, not the angels, not the son, but only the father. Jesus, we find an expression of his dependence 
and his submission to the will of the Father. And you know, there's, there's another spot uh, in, in Mark's Gospels where you see both a picture of Jesus' submission to the Father's will and a command to his disciples to stay awake. You know what I'm talking about? Got any ideas? The garden. In the garden, he goes to pray, and there he is faced with the, the crushing weight of, of enduring the judgment for our sin. You know, there is this immediate and future fulfillment. Do you remember I talked about that a couple times, you know, last time when we started Mark 13? There is a sense in which the judgment that God pours out on, on Jerusalem and in the temple, it's just a foreshadow. It's just a picture of the judgment to come. But the point is Jesus is facing the, 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 the fullness of that judgment for sin in the garden. He, he, he is confronted with the reality that in just a few hours, he is going to have to bear the full weight of God's wrath for sin. And so as he prays, he says to his disciples, watch, stay awake, pray with me. He says to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. It's that same word, by the way, stay awake. And, and as he prayed and, and confronted the awful reality of, of what he was going to face in bearing that cup of God's wrath for sin, he prays to his father, not what I will, but what you will. And immediately after he's done praying, he finds his disciples asleep, not vigilant, not vigilant, not ready, not awake, not alert, sleeping. And now here, here's the thing. I know, I know this of myself and I know this of you. If that had been you, you would have said, forget this. I'm not dying for them. Couldn't even stay awake for, for a little bit. But Jesus still goes, doesn't he? Sleeping disciples. Couldn't even watch with him for a few hours. And he still goes to the cross. He still goes. Even while he found them sleeping, even after they had all abandoned him, he still went to the cross. Brothers and sisters, even though you have spent so much of your life sleeping, and even though in your Christian life you find sluggishness, you don't find alertness and readiness and vigilance, still he went to the cross for you. Still he took the weight of your sin on his shoulders and was crushed under the fierce anger of God in your place. And when you see him there, Brothers and sisters, oh, when you see him there in the garden facing your judgment and saying, I will go, not, not my will, but yours be done. And when you see him hanging on the cross, taking the judgment for your sin, when God gives you eyes to see the beauty and the glory of your Savior, who is now seated at his right hand, perfectly ruling and reigning, completing and accomplishing his work in you, who rules and reigns the universe so as to do good to you and who has promised to come again to make all things new, what that will produce in you is a life of spiritual readiness. When you fix your eyes, that's, that's the message of Hebrews 12, right? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising his, its shame and is seated now at the right hand of the throne of God. When you fix your eyes, when you see and have your eyes fixed on that reality, the present reign of Jesus and the future coming of Jesus and all that he has done for you at the cross, it will produce in you a life of spiritual readiness and vigilance and alertness. So let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith.